Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, Episode 13, Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, a chat with Hank Shaw. Hank is an author, chef, and true wild edibles visionary. His work has elevated wild game to five-star status, yet can be enjoyed on any day of the week. Nick sits down with Hank and merely scratches the surface of preparations and techniques for cooking wild game. Hold on to your apron strings, folks. This one gets deep. I got double bars here. I'm coming up. Excellent. We are live. Folks, I am I'm sitting down across the nation. I'm I'm in Michigan and uh the guru of game is on the west coast of California. Hank Shaw uh with us tonight, author, chef. Which uh which came first, Hank? The authorhood or the chef status? Oh, chef by far. Gotcha. Is that where you got your start? Is uh in the in the cooking world or did you um dabble in anything else before that uh yeah i mean i think you could you could fairly say that uh my first real legit semi-career was was in the kitchen i'd had plenty of jobs before that um including you know commercial fishing and and you know just ran knockabout jobs like i was a janitor for a while but i mean i think the first thing that i really really wanted to do was was work in a professional kitchen yeah, that's something that um, even just recently, I've uh, I've got my own strives to be um, in the kitchen, to be creating um, with my palate, I guess, be able to take food and not only make it taste good, but make it presentable. And um, I guess that's where my jur- journey made you made me find you. Is um, yeah, you've got uh, several books that are out there. Um, not, I mean, the the last one that just came out is. Um, the uh, the small game good the small game book excuse me um, pheasant quail cottontail is the newest one and we're going to get into that um, but my I guess I want to start off you know you talked about a little bit of background you were in um, some commercial fishing you know you've you've been in the food world um, you've dabbled with the domestic side with the commercial what is the big draw of wild game. I think wild food in general is attractive for any number of reasons, but to start with coming at it from a, from a chef's perspective, um, every artisan, every artist, every craftsman of any topic, no matter what it is that you do, you want to create something that's new and unusual and, and I dare say unique. Um, but unique is, you know, it's a rare commodity. I mean, the Roman general Marshall said there was nothing new under the sun 2,000 years ago, and he was probably right. But in the world of cooking, when you deal with wild food, um, you have the opportunity to create dishes and flavors and, and recipes that really do no, not exist anywhere else. Um, you know, you, the, the quest for uniqueness can end with a set of ingredients that nobody's ever put together on the same plate before. And really the only place that you can do that is in the world of wild food, whether it's plants or mushrooms or game or fish. Um, and especially when you start adding all three of those things, which I do, um, you can create a plate of food that is uh, not only completely unique, which is just really exciting if you're, if you do this stuff for a living, but also you can create a, you know, a set of flavors that, will wow people and it could be just something as simple as a saute this, a boiled that, a raw this, and a fermented that, the other thing. And so just by using these these new and interesting ingredients, you can, you know, create. Whereas if you're just going to the supermarket, your ability to create something that hasn't been done before is pretty limited. Yeah, the old adage of it tastes gamey almost doesn't seem to apply anymore that gamey is almost um, what medium am I going to go with that matches this funk or this game like you were like you were mentioning either with the fermented side of it that it's it's almost something to toy with as opposed to something to say ah, I don't want to eat it anymore. I think that I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, especially if we're talking to people under the age of sixty, um, 
I think younger people are more open to new flavors and I think they're more open to the fact that, you know, something might taste of itself and not of corn. I mean, you have to think that every domesticated land animal that we eat in a supermarket eats corn. Chicken's fed on corn. Turkey's fed on corn. Beef is finished on corn. Industrial pigs are finished on corn. And so the only, even some lamb is finished on corn, which is crazy. And so that has a very a sameness of flavor and it has a, um, uh, a boring flavor profile, just to be frank. And when you start to get into the wild world, you know, talking about sage grouse or ducks or, you know, mule deer or, or other animals that tend to not face plant in agricultural crops. You know, you know, you can, I've had whitetails that have a similar flavor profile to grass fed beef and you get these different funks and flavors and, and nuances and touches. And I think people are really more interested in, in bringing out the best in that rather than dunking it in cream and mushroom soup. Yeah. How vanilla can we make, uh, these, you know, how do we dumb it down where, you know, like you're just saying, we're, we're spicing it up, we're, we're utilizing it. Um, as hunters and sportsmen, um, you know, you, you mentioned like that, that 60 mark, the back in the day, you get a buck and you want to show everybody. So you drive it around in the back of your truck for an afternoon and things start to start to go sour from that point. Um, but we, we look at hunters and sportsmen and they pride themselves with the amount of knowledge that we put into seeking the game, stalking the game, uh, what firearm we're going to use, how proficient we can be. And we put so much time into that that we almost forget about the chef's knife or the, the butcher's knife on the other side of it. Uh, we, we're heavy on one end, but not so much on the other. Um, what are going to be some key points that if we want to utilize as much of that animal as possible, um, what do we want to think about when it comes to field care and meat prep? I mean, I'm going to question the premise of your statement there. I mean, I think uh, with the advent of food TV and, again, you're talking about younger hunters um, and even now, I just mean not super old hunters. I mean, I'm not super young myself, but I think there's a very, very big and strong and welcome movement of more and more people caring what they do with their animals. And you're almost seeing uh, an entry of the barbecue machismo filtering into the wild game world in the sense that it becomes a point of pride in how well you can cook X, Y, or Z, um, not just how quickly or how you can kill something or how many you can kill or, or, or which, how many antlers you get on the top of it. Um, so I think that the, I think that the structure of what Americans are, the way we view game is I, I, I think it's changing quite dramatically and, you know, but that said, you know, if you talk about game prep and game care, I think more and more people are caring about it. And, you know, the real simple answer to that is keep things cold or as cold as you can or as cool as you can if you're hunting in a hot environment. I mean, I hunt in, I often hunt in 80 degrees, 90 degrees. And, you know, you've got to have an entirely different set of stuff ready to go if you shoot a deer and it's 85 degrees out than when you shoot a deer and it's zero. Exactly. But, yeah, I mean, I think people are getting it. I think people are... You know, they might, they're still going to, you know, show their deer around, but it's probably going to be gutted at that point, which is, uh, it goes a long way towards good venison. Uh, I think people are starting to get the memo with antelope. You know, antelope has a traditionally terrible reputation, but it's precisely because they're very, they're nervous animals. Their body temperature runs high. Their fur holds heat better than a deer's fur and you hunt them in warm weather. So all of these things combined, like if you don't get your antelope out of the skin and gutted quickly, it's going to taste rotten. And for decades, that would be their reputation. But I think people are starting to understand, oh, no, you've got to, you got to do this, and then it's some of the best meat you can get. So I'm pretty hopeful. Excellent. Yeah, it, just as you've mentioned, like the, the cooking show movement, it's been coming on. Um, it's been increasing. And then, yeah, you, know, you get these um, – 
even the the sportsmen that are coming out. Uh, just to say a name, we're talking, you know, a, a colleague of yours, Stephen Ranella, who he's got an amazing platform and pushes a lot of. The, I mean, his name is Meat Eater, and he's really, I think, helping that movement start going forward. Where it's how much the animal can I utilize? How I mean, this is a great piece of meat, and how how well can we can we enjoy this? Um, so yeah, and then even you taking a front seat in that as well. Um, you know, so coming out with with several books on really taking your your game management or your game utilization from you know, like you said, uh, simple cream of mushroom sh- soup to now coming up with a whole you know Swedish uh, casserole that you've put together. I think that's a it's a real nice trend. I I guess I find myself in that trend as well. Yeah, I think you're getting. I, I think you, yeah, I think what you're seeing more and more of those of us who have platforms in in this world, we're we're passing on information on how to do things uh, to make them taste good. You know, so how to cook a venison tongue or a venison heart or kidneys or or liver or shanks or neck or you know that sort of thing. I think there's always been some sort of mild interest in the back of any deer hunter's head. Like, I wonder if those are any good. And then somebody next to them will be like, nah, no, they're no good because they just don't have the information or, or one part of the country will celebrate X nasty bit. And then, you know, a hundred miles to the North or they never even think about eating it. So I think with the advent of the internet and with people like myself and others, um, there's more good, solid information out there to like if you wanted to cook X, Y, or Z piece of that animal, giblets or or offal or whatever you want to call it. Um, I know for me at least, I can't speak to anybody else, but I want you to eat these parts because I can teach you how to make them delicious. It's I don't I'm not a school marm. I'm not some you know, none want wrapping you on the knuckles saying you should eat the <laughs> heart and kidneys because, you know, you kill the animal, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I feel that, but I'm not going to think you're a bad person if you don't want to eat your deer heart, but I'm going to encourage you to eat your deer heart because I'm going to give you six to seven, eight, ten recipes where you, when you make it, you're like, damn, this is unbelievable. I actually look forward to eating it. You know, it's the, that if you take that aspect of it and that and that tack, there are there's some um, there's some there are there's a, there's a, a, a there is a school marmish uh, thread in the cooking world of like you know waste nothing you you know you should eat it it's like eating your broccoli and that kind of stuff and like well I don't like steamed broccoli and I you know and I don't think that's going to be helpful because you're never going to make somebody eat it you're only going to encourage them by giving them information that will make them want to. For a guy who's wanting to improve his um, his cooking, uh, one thing that I've I've kind of jumped into is you know I hear about a technique or I hear about something on a, either a show or either you know I open up uh, Buck Buck Moose. Have you, have you ever heard of that book? I don't know. No, <laughs> you should look into it. Anyway, it'll mention a technique. It'll mention maybe this is how you should be using. Um, or this is how you should brown your meat. It's it's important to do this. And then it goes on to a list of spices that you throw in there. Or you want to go more of a low and slow. Is a, Our technique in, in wild game, being that it's so varied um, in what you get, whether it's the diet of the animal or whether it's um, the condition of the animal, to, or like muscle to muscle, one that works and the one that doesn't work, does technique on how you cook it play just as big a role as the spices and ingredients you put alongside it? It's much bigger. I mean, technique is everything. Um, I can cook a piece of venison for you that has nothing more than fire and salt. And because I know how to do it, you will enjoy that better than that same piece of venison improperly cooked with someone who uses spice as well. It's just, it's just, that's a simple fact. Um, and I think the way to get there, to get your technique better, because let's face it, cooking with game is, is significantly more difficult than cooking domesticated meats for a number of reasons. 
number one, um, everything that we hunt works for a living. If it didn't, it would have been killed as an infant. Your own pheasants run around, grouse run around, deer run around, everything runs around. And then you have, uh, they're also older. So you have the athleticism of an animal. That's, that's one thing that separates it from, from domesticated game or domesticated animals. And the, the second thing is the age. And with very few exceptions, the animals that we hunt are considerably older than anything that you can get in the store. So age is another factor. Another factor is, you know, especially with deer, you often hunt deer in and around the rut. Nobody in their right mind would slaughter a domestic animal when it's in heat. They just don't because of the hormonal things right. and, the, and the condition of the animal goes down. So you have that to, to deal with. And then you have the, the, the add in the, the variability, you know, besides the fact that they're working, besides the fact that they're a variable age, is that they, you have variable species and then variable, you know, terroir, if you want to use that term. So, you know, a, a coos deer is a whitetail, but it lives in the Sonoran Desert on the Mexican border. It's the same species of deer as, that, as a whitetail in Alberta. But they're going to taste completely different. And, you know, if you're a duck hunter and you're listening to this, everybody listening to this knows that a spoonie is absolutely nothing like a canvasback or a mallard or a pintail. And a speckle belly goose is absolutely nothing like a merganser. But they're all waterfowl. So once you master technique, um, how to properly cook various bits of those animals, you are a long way towards... In the, not only enjoying it for yourself, but it being able to introduce other people to it. I mean, one of the things that I don't, I never get tired of hearing this. Like people will come up to me and say, yeah, man, you know, I've been hunting for X number of years or my whole life or whatever. And, and I use your recipes and finally my significant other, because it, usually it's a wife, but sometimes it's a husband, uh, will now they'll eat it. And that's kind of the whole point, right? Is to, is to make this, this unusual protein accessible to people. Now, I'll give you one, we can talk more about it into detail for sure, but the one thing that you want to take away in terms of technique that you need to remember is this. Amateur wild game cooks will cook the tender parts of an animal too much and the tough parts of an animal too little. If you can fix that in your own cooking, then you 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 won half the half the battle. All right, so you can. I mean, I I get the idea of you know the quick blast to heat to basically sear the outside and leave the inside pink. Um, but it, like, I can overcook a piece of meat, say in a crock pot, or is it at least that's controlled enough that we can leave it in there long enough until it shreds up. Exactly. I mean, you, you can, so I, I hear all the time, oh man, those Canada goose legs are too tough or that venison shank is inedible. Well, you just keep cooking it, keep cooking it. Everything will submit with time. Nothing can, nothing can resist <laughs> slow, moist heat forever. Nothing, not even a stone. I mean, <laughs> if you think about it, that's what sand's made of, you know? Uh, but but you know the worst I ever had, and I've cooked things six ways to Sunday. The worst I ever had was a five-year-old rooster, you know, a regular chicken. Five, it was a five-year-old giant rooster that I was making a, a stew out of, and it took six hours. But it it got it got good eventually. Oh, that's a tough you know, old I've, bird right there. Oh man, it's just the toughest of anything I've ever cooked, and it just. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that's the thing. It's like if it, if you think it's too tough, keep cooking it, and. With the tender pieces, you know, cook it less than you think you should because you can always cook it more. Yeah, I, I really like when it's a like a backstrap or even the the sirloin, the rump rump side of it. Um, yeah, just a quick blast of heat and salt and pepper is about all I add to it. And, you know, there, there's times where, man, you hit a home run and then you get the one time where you, you stopped paying attention for – just it what it seems like 30 seconds and it's already like oh, okay i'm i'm now here into medium well world but i'm it's still and that's a really good point it's a really good point because um the other thing that is dramatically different between we're cooking and what you would cook from the supermarket is the near absence of fat and 
that will happen with venison. We just described because fat is an insulator. If you, you know, if you have marbling in a steak, that's an insurance policy against you, you know, getting distracted. A venison backstrap does not have any marbling ever. And so you're right. You can go from a home run to well done in the space of a minute and a half sometimes. And so you have to be on, you have to pay attention. Yeah. If your fat is your insurance, the olive oil you put on is like PLPD, huh? Partial, <laughs> partial insurance. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's. I mean, it's. It's actually, in some ways, worse because it, when you have oil on the outside of a meat, that is a, a conductor of heat. It's the. It's the fat melting in between the the marbling that is the insurance policy. So I'm almost counterintuitive if I'm adding to the outside. I could probably even roast it quicker, or you know, it'll it'll come to temperature quicker having the oil on the outside. That's a good oh yeah, I mean that's why you, that's why everybody in the world when you saute things you have oil in the pan. Gotcha. That you're making things. And if you're quick. doing a roast, if you're doing a roast in the oven, coat whatever, coat that piece of meat with oil and then put your salt and pepper on it. It will cook better. Oil on, then salt and pepper. Yep, because if you don't you do the oil second, oil your salt and pepper, you're knocking your salt and pepper off. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's this little, like you said, technique is everything. It's the little steps that we've just missed. We haven't thought it completely through. And here's a here's another one you're going to want to that that matters, especially with wild game, is if you are trying to cook something large, it needs to come to room temperature. If you're trying to cook something thin, you want to cook it right out of the refrigerator. So, a couple examples: if you're going to roast a duck, that should be room temperature before it goes in the oven. If you are going to cook a teal breast with no skin on it, that should come, that should come right out of the refrigerator. Now, the theory is this. So if you've ever cooked skirt steak or flank steak, you know that you want that really good char. You want that really good grill marks and smoke and, and just some blackening. Well, if that piece of meat was at room temperature before you did that, by the time you'd get your good grill marks and, and, and blackening, the inside of the meat would be way overdone. So that meat has to have the insurance policy of cold. But on the other hand, if you've got a thick steak, let's say you, you shot an elk and you've got a nice, good, you know, what I call an American style steak, which is, you know, two, three fingers thick, right? Oh, yeah. So that's, Done that's a much bigger piece of meat. Exactly, right? You know, it's America. We don't need, we don't need one <laughs> finger steaks. Uh, and pork chops should have two bones in them. Um, so those kinds of pieces of meat, that's so thick that you, you don't want that to have that blackening in, in, the, in cold inside because that's called black and blue. I mean, if you like black and blue, that's great. But most people don't. Most people want it evenly cooked or close to evenly cooked. And so one way to do that is, um, I mean, I don't, I don't do reverse sear very often because I don't have to because um, I've been cooking for 20-some-odd years. But a reverse sear is a good technique to use where you have a very, let's say you have big old elk, elk chops or pork chops, and you you bring them to room temperature, and then you have them in a slow oven, you know, like 250. And it takes a little while, but you'll, you want to get it like an internal temperature. And this is where you'd have to use a thermometer. Yeah. An internal temperature of like one, you know, in the case of elk, 120, maybe 125. And then you pull it out of that slow oven and you sear the crap out of it on a, in a pan or on a grill really quick. And that'll bring the internal temperature up to about a 130, 135 which is medium rare to rare. And so that method works quite well. It also works really well with big, big bird breasts, like turkey breasts or uh, sandhill cranes or Canada geese. Gotcha. I've used primarily that reverse sear on uh, mm-hmm. on venison, the, the backstrap. I've got it. I think I got that dialed in. That was my, my ace in the hole doing the, the reverse sear. Um, mm-hmm. I got it real good. I, I can make a steak Diane that way that's my uh my go-to is i can um do it in the oven slow and then get it into the pan and then whatever my caramelization on that that's where i build the sauce from um but yeah that it's funny you mentioned that because i was like that was my ace in the hole was that reverse sear mm-hmm. i got that down i'm very happy that i've been able to to 
reintroduce steak Diane to the hunting world. I mean, I think that's, I consider that a victory. Yeah, it's just smooth, silky, and wow, man, I love it so much. I know I'm giving it away. You, you've already got your, uh, um, your two dish breakdown coming up here. You're going to talk about your date night menu. I have yet to talk about mine, but mine's definitely probably going to be that steak Diane. That's that's how I get uh, I get the night started right. <laughs> um, in Michigan, we're right now in the fever of of the rut. Speaking of the rutting bucks, um, and it's it's the big three in Michigan that seems to pop up a lot, and that's that's deer, that's fish, and it's small game. Uh, those three categories, just about every hunter has he at least heard of them or knows a guy that, that loves small game and he specializes in that, or there's a guy that's just an angler and he will fish inland and big lake and just all species of fish. And then you got your deer-specific guys that they don't seem to listen to anything else other than when are the bucks moving. Um, you've just come out with the new small game book, Pheasant, Quail, Cottontail, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of play devil's advocate with you for a minute. I want you to try and sell a Michigan deer hunter. I'll I'll play the the deer hunter specialist. I want you to sell me the idea on why I should take time out of the stand to chase something a fraction of the size of that whitetail that I'm going for. All right, how many deer can you shoot in a season in Michigan? Um, I think we're up to six. I think you can get four does and two bucks. CWD has also thrown in some new rules, so I don't know mm. exactly how many. In the in the zone, I think they're handing out tags to anybody with a weapon. So I, I'll have to double so, check on that. So anyway, so if you, if that's your deal, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna be the guy to tell you to not do that. I mean, go ahead. If that's if that blows your skirt up. You know, because I know guys who will shoot two or three does to fill the freezer and then they'll spend the rest of their season chasing Mr. Big Rack and that's fine. But for that person, you you know, that person's also going to hunt turkeys in the spring and that person is, chances are, is going to hunt small game before or after those seasons are over. And so it's, you don't, it's not a zero sum game. You don't have to do one or the other, Um, especially when you consider spring turkey season. And, but the way I approach deer hunting is I, I, you know, I'm not a trophy hunter. Um, I, you know, I'll shoot a big deer if it comes by, but for me, hunting deer is putting meat in the freezer and I don't begrudge anybody that, I mean, go for it. But for me, I have more fun. Um, I enjoy my time in the field more. When I'm walking around, when I'm seeing different environments, when I'm chasing different things, when I'm sort of using a different muscle, if you if you will. Um, so I always want to shoot a deer or two in a year, but I don't think I need any more than a couple of does or one nice buck or one elk or something like that. So once that's done, then that sort of meat weight is left is lifted off your shoulders, and then you know you can chase birds for the whole rest of the time. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's because it's just, let's face it, it's a lot more, it's a lot less stressy, right? Exactly. Like if you go out grouse hunting, you're like, ah, we're good at grouse. If you're like day 15 in the stand and you haven't seen anything, you're, you're going to be, you know, your sphincter's going to be puckered, you know? <laughs> you have those days, they're slow and you're like, why am I out here? And I like how you're saying like, exactly, don't be there. Go chase something else. Yeah, I mean... I know a lot of guys actually will also take an air gun into the deer stand and whack squirrels. <laughs> that's that's got to be a, a good idea because, yeah, there's a lot of times I just watch them climb up in trees. That keeps me occupied for those first couple hours. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, me personally, I, I don't know if I could do a tree stand. Like I, I hunt in the West. You know, we walk up – we walk up to the top of some high place and glass all day. That's what we do. And then we figure, oh, there's a deer like two miles away. Let's see if we can get on it. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I can only get like 450 yards. All right, that's good enough, you know. Um, so it's just a very different way of hunting. Um, I don't know that I could do a tree stand, I, you know. Yeah. I, I, I guess I have to try, you know. it. There's a lot of contemplation. It's a very thoughtful way about going about um hunting because it's it's you and yourself 
and that's it. Uh, it's true because even a duck blind, there's almost always somebody else. Yeah, and you can, you know, if the birds aren't in the sky, you're yelling back and forth with somebody. You're talking, you're chatting it up. Oh, hey, here comes up. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Everybody, get down. When it's deer hunting, it's yeah, you're you got to sit there. Even sometimes reading a book, you know, I think the worst thing ever for uh, deer hunting has been uh, long range on your cell phone. If you can get if you can get data way out in the middle of the deer woods, you know, you're looking at the phone. You're not looking at what's coming. You got to make sure you oh, put that yeah. thing away. I've seen that a lot, actually. I've seen that a lot in um, in duck hunting, actually, where some guy would be looking down, like could be checking to some su- some stupid feed of something, and like ducks fly over. And I don't care, man. I'll just shoot right over them. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's like as he's taking his he's, selfie to say, "Look at me." <laughs> yeah, they usually they usually stop doing that after the first time, you know. <laughs> Drop a couple mallards right next to their head. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, those are mine because you, you still got three in the tube. I know you didn't shoot. When I'm cooking squirrel and cottontail, uh, we'll, we'll even add rabbits into that. Uh, what are going to be some tips that I want to be looking for on on cooking those up? I've I've cooked rabbit once, and I, I tried to do a rabbit and dumpling, and I think the rabbit was good, but the dumpling side fell apart on me and so it turned out to be this ultra thick gravy so that <laughs> okay <laughs> that that dish was just thrown out i think that you know but so um, i do um i do dumplings a lot um and there's a lot of different ways to do dumplings there's a lot so um i guess to start with your question rabbits are one of the very few wild animals that you can fry like a chicken because they they don't live very long, so they tend to be fairly tender. If you shoot enough squirrels and you know what a, a young squirrel looks like, then you can fry them too. Um, but squirrels can live seven or eight, nine years in the wild, so you do not want to just fry any old squirrel because you'll be chewing until next week. That's amazing so, that they have that that lifespan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, anybody who's hunted squirrels a lot knows they're damn smart. You know, they're, they are not, they are not, dumb animals. They are, a, they are a wily, they're among the wiliest things that we hunt. If you get into a place where they are hunted, um, you know, obviously if you go to a place where they've never been hunted, they can be dumb the first couple of days and they smarten up real quick. But so, yeah, so you don't want to, you, you typically will par cook squirrels, you know, to, to braise them until they're slightly tender and then you can bread them and fry them. Um, but that's the general thing. So you can never go wrong with braising rabbits or squirrels ever. Uh, it's always a good idea. So that includes, you know, and what I mean by raising is um, where you are cooking parts of the animals until they're tender, and you're you're serving it as parts of the animals with stuff. Gotcha. Is that as opposed to as opposed to like a stew or a soup? So uh, real quick, the soup in the soup, the broth is the star, and there's stuff in it. A stew, the stuff in the broth is the star. So that's a good way to just mentally di- figure out what's a soup and what's a stew. Gotcha. Um, and in those cases, I, you know, I don't think I know too many people who don't want their meat stripped off the bone. So, because you eat them with a spoon and you don't want to have like a, you know, squirrel bones in your soup. Right. Um, so in those cases, you are, you know, you're effectively braising both of the animals in lots of, of liquid and then you're going to fish them out pick the meat off the bones and then throw the bones away and then, uh, and then put the meat back in the stoop, super stew. So, I mean, that's generally how you're going to cook all of those animals. I mean, there's other ways, but, um, you know, one, one way that's very popular is to par cook, um, squirrel or rabbit legs. So they're tender and then toss them with, you know, a sauce that makes you happy and then roast them in the oven or smoke them. So one really amazing thing to do would be take a barbecue sauce or buffalo sauce or something like that on some par-cooked rabbit legs or squirrel legs and then marinate them in that. They're already cooked, so marinate them in you know some sauce that makes you happy overnight and then take them out and put them in a, like a Traeger or some other smoker and smoke them until they're, you know, in like an hour, really low heat. And those things are going to be ridiculously good. I bet, I bet. Now they tend to be but, 
as squirrels and and uh, cottontails, they tend to be a little more mild as far as we're talking about the a strong um, game flavor. I shouldn't say game, but it, as far as a strong flavor, they tend to be. Oh yeah, they're a very bit mild. mild. Gotcha. Uh-huh. So they yep. they'll take the that like apple wood on your on your Traeger, or they're going to take like some of that hickory smoke real well. That'll probably be a good pairing on those. Hickory's a bit strong. It's not so strong that I wouldn't do it, but it's it's getting there. Um, you know, hickory's a classic for pork and beef. Um, I like maple and oak and fruit woods for rabbits and squirrels. Gotcha, gotcha. It, the same stuff that they're climbing on, huh? If they climb up them? Pretty much, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's the one you're going to use. <laughs> Squirrel and forest fire. <laughs> well, sticking with that squirrel... Um, Acorn uh, flower. I I dabbled. I got your. Um, I think it was your very first book, and I think there was a section in there on acorn flower. Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of process are you going through? Because I've picked up an acorn before and thought about people make this into flour, and I take a take a bite out of it, and man, about turns my face inside out. I can't imagine. Well, you know. Yeah. I, well, why, don't you, why don't you go eat fresh olives or or unripe persimmons while you're at it? You know. <laughs> there I mean, you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so all of the, the problem with all three of those is tannin. And the good thing is tannin is water soluble. Um, so the, the thing about acorns is, uh, it's something to do with acorns and acorns are a very abundant food and, and making flour like that doesn't take a ton of work once your acorns are cracked. Um, and they make good, good nutcrackers where you can whale through a whole bunch of them. Because you basically you've got to shell the acorns. You've got to chunk them up or, or blend them up into like a coarse meal. And then leach the tannins out of them with water. So you can do that either with boiling water by many changes of boiling water. But, you know, you can, you can put all your acorn bits in, uh, in a pot and cover it with water, bring it to a boil, pour off that water and repeat that you know, five, six, seven, eight times. Like, but you could have, you know, you could have acorns ready to eat in the time it takes you to watch a football game. Gotcha. Or you can do a better method, which results in a superior flower, but it takes days in the sense that you have all your crunched up acorns and then you cover them with cold water and you put them in the refrigerator or in a cool place. And then you shake it up and then you, every day you pour off that water and add more water. So that slower technique preserves the acorn starch and the starch will help that acorn flour stick to itself. So if you want to use it for baked goods, you need to do it cold leached um, because otherwise you'll have to add, you know, wheat flour or something or uh, for it to stick. Gotcha. What, what type of baked goods would, would work real well with a, with an acorn flour? I tend to use uh, acorn flour as an additive to wheat flour in general. Because I I don't I, I'm not gluten free or anything like that, so um, it works very well up to fifty percent of whatever it is that you're going to do. Now here's a trick: if you're going to do something that you, where you want fifty percent of your baked good to be acorn flour, uh, use bread flour for the wheat. Now even if it's a pastry, now it sounds crazy, but there's no gluten in acorn flour, so the extra gluten in bread flour is going to help your baked good stick together. So if you do a 100% acorn flour cake, for example, it'll barely hold together. It'll hold together, but it'll barely hold together. Um, you know, you can do tortillas, flatbreads. You can do those with 100% acorn flour. Uh, you can make a roux. Um, you can use the starch if you can, because the starch will separate out. You can use the starch exactly like you would cornstarch. Um, you can use the grits in a soup. They're basically, imagine anything that you can do with chestnuts, and that's what you can do with a leached acorn. Gotcha. So, yeah, that opens up the door to a lot of things. Sitting in that tree stand, contemplating, because that's what we do for hours, chasing the deer, <laughs> and you see the, the squirrels, you're like, how can I pair what it eats with with itself in a dish? And so I'm thinking, like, you know, acorn pancakes with a little bit of uh, morning squirrel sausage or something. But that would be uh, something to do like a flatbread and a squirrel taco might be, even be a, a fun thing. This is my yeah. this is my artisan mind taking over. 
Check I just out. did a squirrel pies. I just did a um, half moon hand pies, and I put acorn flour in the dough, and then in the filling was um, shredded squirrel meat, black walnuts, um, apples, and um, a little bit of Gruyere cheese. And so the cheese sort of brought it together, and then but everything else was, you know. Stuff from a, I, I'd been squirrel hunting in Ohio and they were eating black walnuts and acorns and, and crab apples. So I figured that would go into the dish. And it probably turned out amazing. So everything seemed to it all was, work together. It was really good. Yeah, I guess we'll get to uh, my, my two dish breakdown. This is a, a question I've asked of every guest that we've had on our, on our podcast. And I'm going to have you give the details and break down uh, a dish given a category. So for your first dish, um, we're looking at a little bit of wild game diplomacy. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of hunters and anglers that use your books to, to try and, you know, have friends and families try this new meat out. And I'm being in the, the world that you're in, I'm sure you're exposed to a lot of people who have not, and they're interested in what does this taste like and what makes this so good. What are you serving someone who is curious about small game, but they're just a little hesitant to try it straight on. Um, it's funny because I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, you know, so the, the easy answer would be like, you know, buffalo turkey mac and cheese or pheasant pheasant mac and cheese or something, you know, something where, you know, the, the small game plays an incidental part. It just happens to be mixed in to something they've already seen. Yeah. You could do that or chili, you know, I mean, that's all fine. Um, but if somebody, I mean, I mean, again, if someone's coming to me, I'm a little different in the sense that if you're coming to me, it's a trust fall. So you know that I'm going to cook it well, because this is what I do. And people are much more willing when they're around me to eat the unadulterated thing of whatever it is that, that I'm cooking. So like a great example is like uh, ducks. Lots of people have a bad feeling about wild ducks. Well, it all depends on the duck, of course. I mean, if you're shooting mergansers, I, I don't know that I can help you, but, exactly. uh, <laughs> but you know, if you've got mallard, let's say, let's just take a mallard, right? So you, you shot a mallard. Um, I'm going to pluck that mallard and I'm going to, cut that breast off with the skin and I'm going to sear that mallard breast so that the skin is crispy. Most, but not all of the fat is rendered out and the meat is medium rare. And I'm going to serve it with salt, freshly ground black pepper and a squeeze of lemon. And you're going to love it. Period. End of story. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like there's, there is just no one who's not going to love that. And because it's a steak wearing a hat made of bacon and no one doesn't love that. And so that's a case where here's the thing full on and I'm just going to cook it in a simple way properly. Again, we're going back to technique. So if it was rabbit, say, well, hell man, I'm just going to make you some buttermilk fried rabbit and you're going to eat it and you're going to love it. Or I'm going to, I'm going to grill some doves and you're going to pick that little dove up and you're going to eat it and you're going to love it. And it just, it's one of these things where if you, if your technique is sound, the meat shines by itself. And if you do have to hide it, if, if someone just can't handle the fact that you're eating a small bird, um, you know, maybe you don't want to be that person's friend. <laughs> just cut them out completely. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, of course, but right, I right. mean, the, the point is like, yeah, I mean, I know, I mean, I know guys who are married and and their wife or their kids or their husband, you know, they 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 won't eat the game that that person brings home, and that's appalling. Yeah, that's a kind of a that's kind of a deal breaker in a lot of ways because it's like this is hunting is a big deal. It is, I mean, it's if if you're a hunter, it's not just picking up a pheasant from the grocery store. It's not just you know, let me go down the store and get some more deer chops. This represents not only a lot of hard work that you've done, it represents a lifestyle, a choice of way that you live your life. And, and for the person to not even try it, 
that's a rejection of a lot of what makes you you. And I think that's that's a serious issue. And I'm always surprised at how the, you know, because also if you think about it, like let's say, let's say you were in that situation. All right, you shoot a nice big buck. Dude, you got to eat that whole deer yourself? Really? So, you know, you're going to make these wonderful meals for one? That's a thing, man. I mean, I'd be I'd be hard pressed. Yeah, part of the joy of it is like I said or, or like you just mentioned, making it for a family, making it a big ordeal because to you it was a big ordeal. You're Yeah, or you're even just it, it, it's oh, even better to make it a commonplace. To like, oh, what are we having on Tuesday? Oh, we're having deer chili. What are we having on Thursday? Oh, we're going to have uh, pheasant pheasant schnitzels, you know, that kind of thing. Where, So it doesn't have to be a big deal in the sense of like the meal itself, but it's a, it's a big deal in the sense of this is part of who, what makes our family our family. Yeah. Um, I just, it, it wasn't the book, but it was a documentary on Netflix. I've got uh, three kids and they're real small. The one likes to get up in the middle of the night and still be fed with a bottle. So I get a lot of these documentaries on, on Netflix. Um, and there was uh, the one called Cooked. Uh, it's by the same author that did Omnivore's Dilemma. Oh, yeah. yeah. Powell. Mm-hmm. I forget his first name. My- Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan. And he, uh, in that documentary, he mentions about there's a lot of these shows out there for uh, watching cooking and we're intrigued with cooking, but yet there's the least amount of cooking going on in, 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 he mentioned America right now, that we're so busy with everything else that we, our kitchens are, are almost left waiting, starving to cook something. And this way of life of hunters that they're not even going and getting the animal. I mean, it's full animal butchery it down to making uh, specific dishes like you're mentioning. Yeah, there's time and effort and energy put into that. If if that doesn't speak out to, hey, take this trust fall like you said and try it, that's a there's a there's a deeper issue going on. Yeah, I mean, it, to get into the so a little bit of that 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 has been a big piece of what what I do and why I do it is that let's take a typical you know Michigan family for example, where you know. Somebody's a deer hunter in a family, and the family knows like seven recipes that they that they cook their deer with because everybody will eat it, and it's their safe zone, and it's great. Um, where I come in is it's ex- it's extraordinarily important for me to present to my readers recipes that are tested by them, so. Every one of my books has been, every recipe has been tested by regular humans. Like I don't let chefs test my recipes. I don't let professional recipe testers test my recipes because they're not the ones who buy the book. And if I'm going to tell, you know, let's say your family to go to a Mexican market and maybe you've never been to a Mexican market to buy a bunch of ingredients that you've never heard of to create a dish that you sound they're really excited about, but you're worried because you've never even, you don't even know if this is tastes right or whatever, if the recipe is going to work. Like I'm asking you to do all that. That recipe did better damn well work. Yeah. And then if I'm going to ask you to do something different with your tenderloin or the, the, the six woodcock that you shoot a season or something like something super precious like that, well, that recipe better damn well work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so like that that piece of it. So, what I'm trying to do is is help people take little steps out of their comfort zone, and and the books will take you for the the books will take you anywhere from deeply within your comfort zone to I I, I will not apologize for the chefy recipes that I have in, in the book, and there's not many of them. So, you know, there's 125 recipes in pheasant quail cottontail. There's probably 15 of them that are legit chefy. And and there are people who are listening to this who are like, "Yep, bring it." And then there's going to be people who are like, "Yep, never going to do it." <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. You have 110 other recipes to cook from. So, yeah, it's like, you know, it, me being from the teaching world, you have like the mainstream class and then you've got the special table, not special as in but it's the table that's advanced, the table that needs the challenge and 
that's where those recipes come in is like, hey, you got to stay engaged. You got to be tested out. You got to throw something with definite uh, challenge in that. Oh, yeah. Like like there's a dish in it's actually a very simple dish, but there's a dish in Buck Buck Moose, which is my third book um, uh, for Neapolitan venison tripe. And everybody listening to this is like, oh, my God. And, <laughs> except for Italian guys. We're like, oh, my God, this will be actually made Neapolitan tripe. Uh, so Neapolitan tripe is a, if you if you want to try it the way it's supposed to be eaten, go to an old school Italian place, like a red sauce place and look at the menu. It'll be there almost certainly. And it is um, strips of uh, braised tripe that are served in a very spicy tomato sauce. So the tripe actually takes the place of the noodles in that case. Okay. It's amazing. And I thought, I wonder if I can do this with a deer. And so I got lucky one day. So I shot a deer like five minutes from the ranch. So we just hauled the deer in the back of the truck whole and gutted it at the ranch. And well, when you gut something at a ranch, you've got a hose available. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. So I opened the stomach and cleaned the tripe out and, and with a hose and did everything you need to do for beef tripe with a deer. And, you know, I got it all cleaned up and I have instructions in the book on how to do that. And then I vacuum sealed it for like, I don't know, God, a couple of months. And then finally it's we're staring there looking at me in the box freezer and I'm like, Holly, we're going to do it. She's like, all right. <laughs> so I made it exactly how you're supposed to make it because I, you know, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood in New Jersey, so I'm used to this recipe. And we made it, and we both looked at each other like, Jesus, this is amazing. This is really good. And it's one of those recipes that, if somebody makes it, it's going to change the way they view things. And uh, I, a couple people have made it from the book, but it's it that is arguably my most challenging recipe and you know be just because there's an ick factor of of cleaning the cleaning the stomach of the, of the deer which almost no one's going to do and that's fine but somebody's going to do it somebody will do it and somebody has done it and and, th and that's always a fun moment when i you know someone sends me a photo on social media or, or sends me a note and said i did this weird ass recipe that you made like crispy fried duck tongues or or um, I've made fromage du tête with whole dough heads, you know, you know, which is it's head cheese. But you basically simmer uh, a dough's head in spices until everything falls apart, oh, and then wow. you, and then you, you know, peel the tongue and cut that into big pieces, and then you cut, you know, you peel off the meat and cut that into you know small pieces, and then you have all the weirdness of like fat and tissue and everything, and you cut that super small. Uh, that's the general rule with head cheese, by the way. If you can recognize it, keep it as a large piece. If you don't recognize it, chop it smaller. <laughs> <laughs> Get it to it. It's not a big deal at that point. Yeah, you know, and and some, you know, people do that. People do that recipe. And it's like I'm super proud of the fact that people do that recipe in some small part because of my influence. And that's that makes it all worth it. That's been one thing that, like, the tripe, I mean, I'm sure that's something maybe – down the road, like like you said, I, I just got to pull the trigger to do it. It's going to be a trust. Well, thing. what you need to do is you need to go to an Italian restaurant and order it, and then see if you like it. Because well, if you don't like the, the dish done by a pro, you're not going to like it done, done by, by yourself. Yeah. But despite the the, tri the tripe side of it, like that head cheese, that's always been something I, I've seen it with pork, and I've tried it um, with pork, and it is. It's just such a interesting flavor, and it. It's something that I kind of want to keep going back for. To do that with a doe's head would just be incredible. I would definitely go get the deer tested first. We'll just throw it in the freezer first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. Yeah. You know, no patient yeah, zero going that. on over here. Yeah, there's no CWD in the West, so I don't have to worry about that. So, oh, and and any antelope hunters out there, um, CWD does not affect antelope because they're not a cervid, so you're safe to safe with that. Oh, that's a hot tip right there. Yep. If whitetail become off limits, we're just going to start moving those antelope out east. They're going to have to learn to jump. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that was that was a great great tangent there. Um, my second dish, you've you've kind of mentioned a little bit. You went really high class with the the tripe side of it. Um, yeah, we're we're going to be talking about date night. Um, do you do most of the cooking 
day to day, or uh, do you take I the back, I back do. rule? You do. So you know, you cooking for um, a lady friend or or the missus isn't going to be um, out of place, but it's it's date night. You're trying to make it real special. What are you making to make the night right? Are you talking me, or are you talking some somebody? You know, I'm, I'm talking like if it's if it's if I'm trying to impress someone. I, yeah, I'm talking you specific. You are trying to oh. impress the the lady. Well, friend if I'm going to do it, I'm going to first of all, chances are she's interested in food, so pretty much anything will go. So what I will do is I will create, I'll create you. I'll probably do a set of dishes, and I'll probably do kind of a personal tasting menu based off of what she likes, and. Obviously, you suss out what she likes first, and then you make dishes that play off of all of those things that she's mentioned. And, you know, you go from soft dishes and quiet dishes to bigger dishes. And then, you you know, it's you basically choreograph the evening in terms of the dishes that you create. And you don't want them to be too heavy because you don't want her to be all like, oh, I just got to sit on the couch and just watch, you know, Netflix. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, you just, you create lots of teasing tastes. You do, you do dishes where there's like three bites and, you know, because there's the, the rule of three bites is this, and they do this a lot in high and high dining is where the first bite you, you're surprised and the second bite you get it. And the third bite, you're sad that it's gone. And you do that four with four or five dishes. And, you know, I think you, you pretty much have it set. And you always start with dessert, by the way. So here's a key, this is a pro tip in terms of designing a menu. If you're ever going to do a menu for, you know, that's more than one or two dishes. If you're going to do, say, five dishes, which is not uncommon for a holiday or a big date night, um, you start with dessert. So dessert rules everything because it's the last thing that your guests eat. And it's a way to, you know, send off, send either, if you're in the restaurant, it's a way to send them off into the night with a happy feeling. If you are at a date night, it's a way to, you know, kick off the second half of the evening. And that dessert, A, has to be uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> and B, has to have echoes uh, from the previous courses. So mm, let's say you have something with, you know, pecans in the dessert, you'll, you'll have pecans somewhere previously in the dish. You know, maybe it's course two or something. Uh, let's say it's uh, like a maple bourbon pecan ice cream. So maybe you've got, you know, a maple bourbon glaze on a duck somewhere earlier. Um, you know, where you've got echoes from the previous dish that are really, really brought into kind of a coda or a, or a finale in the dessert. And, and when you, design food that way it is you can design really a song or a or a poem to the person that you love um by putting that kind of thought into it and it's it can be really magical going tapas on us the multi dish that is a great that is a great setup could you say the three bite system again that was yes what's the rule of three? so it, the rule of the, the three bite dish um it's probably the most famous person who does it is thomas keller who's arguably one of the most famous chefs in america he runs the french laundry so that first bite is surprise and delight and that second bite is that full immersion in whatever it is that dish tastes like and the third bite is you're so sad it's gone and you want more every you always leave them wanting more so you know if you're going to do a, a dinner like that your portions are actually supposed to be pretty small because i might want to eat a giant big bowl of pasta and, and homemade homemade pasta and homemade sugo or, or ragu but i'm, I'm not going to give you i'm going to give you three or four bites and then we're going to move on to another dish and you're going to be like, God damn it, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> now, if it's a Tuesday night, I'm going to give you a giant bowl of it. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'd be ready to go have leftovers for lunch the next day. Yeah, but you're, you're talking to me, you know, you're asking me about a date night. That's what I do. That, I'm going to, I'm going to have to listen to that over and over again. That's, that sounds great. 
um, doing the multi-dish, just real small, three-bite rule. You, you, you hook them, you sink it in, and then you leave them wanting more. Yeah, yeah. You can go as many as five, but don't go more than five. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, I mean, and again, so a lot of it is, uh, there's a, and then there's the concept of the amuse-bouche, which is, uh, um, it's a one-bite dish. So if you go to a high-end restaurant, it, it, often something will sort of magically appear in front of you that is not on the menu and you didn't ask for. And it's, it's the chef's amuse-bouche. Um, it's just a, a little bit of a kiss for the mouth. And it's a one-bite, and, oh, whoa, that was cool, and then it's gone. And if you wanted to do bigger dishes, so dishes where there were like a legit portion, um, you a lot of times you'll do these amuse bouche in between, as they'll they'll call it an intermezzo, like a like a um, a break between regular courses that will just kind of wake you up or or jar you back awake, you know, or or change the conversation at the table. And so there's these these one little wine bite master. I mean, they're and they put a lot of thought on, into them. You know, a lot of for me, it's a lot of times it'll be something that has been long fermented or cured or something like that with something bright and fresh. So there's this kind of, you know, sweet, sour, funky, salty thing like boom, gone. And then you move on to the next dish. Almost like a cloud cleanser or a palate cleanser or just like a reset mm-hmm. you're mentioning. Yep. Yep. Wow. This is taking, yeah, just our, our normal day date night to the, the next level. This is, this is good stuff. I don't mess around, man. I no. cook for a living. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Crafting a menu. That's something that I don't, I think the average guy hasn't come or even thought about yet. So, you know, we're going to start wowing yeah, some people ask. over here. Yeah, exactly. We're going to take that and run with it. But I mean, if it's a regular guy, you know, if it was, if it was me, Hank Shaw, and I'm 19 years old and I'm just starting to cook, Steak Diane, yeah. that Steak Diane was, that was the dish that I used as a date night dish when I was in college. Cause you can make it in 30 minutes. It's quick. It's, and that mm-hmm. you know, the pan sauce almost makes itself and it just mm-hmm. soaks into that piece of meat. Yeah. I'm with you on the Diane. That's been my, my go-to, but now I got to start these, uh. These tapas dishes. This is a this is a new <laughs> avenue. This sounds really good. Well, Hank, thanks a ton for taking an hour and just being able to to chat with me on uh, this evening, your your afternoon. Um, where where can uh, my listeners find more, or where can they find your books at? Let's do a shameless plug here. We want to we want to push people to you. Well, my books are available wherever books are sold. Um, so wherever you like to get books, you can get them there. Uh, I have four. The first is Hunt, Gather, Cook, and that has a little bit of everything, including foraging and fishing, as well as hunting. And then I have three books that focus on specific kinds of game. The first is Duck, Duck, Goose, and that one obviously covers waterfowl. And then Buck, Buck, Moose, and that is a venison and so venison in all its forms. So elk and deer and antelope, moose, and that sort of stuff. And then the latest book is Pheasant, Quail, Cottontail, and that covers pretty much everything else. So turkeys and pheasants and grouse and woodcock and rabbits and squirrels and that sort of thing. Um, I'm all over social media. So I'm Hunt, Gather, Cook on Instagram. And um, I'm by my name on Twitter, although I don't do a ton on Twitter. Most of my actions either on Facebook or Instagram. And Facebook, the group is called Hunt, Gather, Cook. And it's a closed forum. So just say that you heard me on this podcast and uh, I will let you in. Excellent. Yeah, I I, uh, just saw that the other day, the forum, and it's been great. There is a lot of people that are really diving into this movement of making wild game every day. How can we make it special? Not, I mean, it already is special, but it's a, it's Mm -hmm. a great forum. Yeah. I'm a two thumbs up on that. And it's drama free. So we have everything from, you know, you know, all we, we do not allow politics on that forum. So it's, you know, it's just about the wild food. And so we get all kinds there and it's uh, a really good place for all kinds of people to just get better at whatever wild food it is that they're, that they're working with. Excellent. So yeah, folks check out Hank, find some of his books. Um, what, what's your website again? That's honest, honest dash food. Probably the easiest way to get to is huntgathercook.com. Huntgathercook.com. Excellent. 
Well, Hank, thanks again for uh, taking an hour and uh, talking with us. This has been been great. Folks on my on my podcast on this on this channel are really uh, into stepping up their game, and uh, you're you're giving giving us the challenge. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. All right. Have a good night. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please give us a rating or review. It helps us get noticed. Also, be sure to find us at our Instagram or Facebook account, Huntivore Podcast. Until next time, keep your knives sharp.